Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. Howdy and welcome to the Where to Hunt podcast, the podcast that connects public land hunting enthusiasts. I love doing this podcast. It is a lot of work to do this podcast, but I really do love it. And I love talking to the guests that we have on. I learn something new every single time I talk to someone and I cannot wait for this season to start applying all of this knowledge I've been just soaking up like a sponge. On today's episode, I bring on guest Buck Robinson from uh, Outdoor Access, which sadly has not um, yet migrated all the way here to Wisconsin and the Midwest, but they are an East Coast company that essentially is the Airbnb of hunting. Now, that might be controversial to some. That's not for me to say. Uh, what I think is neat is that it, it really does help solve the problem of congestion and public land hunting, um, at least over there in the East Coast and, and kind of what they've identified as an urban hunting kind of area where you might not have the ability to get away to your property if you are a private landowner, if you have lease um, or some of the other bigger chunks of public land here in Wisconsin or wherever it is that you are hunting, depending on where you're listening, they have a platform where you simply say, I'm a hunter, I'm going to browse through and scroll through this like I would Airbnb and look for a property that's nearby. And for a nominal fee of X, let's say it's 25 bucks, I can go hunt that property this Saturday and or this Saturday and Sunday. And that landowner, um, <clears throat> as opposed to doing a lease for an entire year and going through all this stuff, um, they now have a hunter that has a background check that they are confident knowing who that person is and who is going to be accessing their property and are also making some money. So it's a win-win kind of proposition. And it's something that is going to work its way here from the sounds of it. In the interview you hear, uh, Buck says that, you know, it's likely that their platform could make it out this way to Wisconsin, where I'm from, uh, by about 2020. So I'm not going to yammer on and explain it all. Buck does a better job of it. He's a pretty funny guy. I mean, it's getting into deer season. The guy's name is Buck. So I kind of had to reach out and, and have him on as a guest almost for that reason in and of itself. And I think it's a pretty neat interview, especially considering one of the things Buck had mentioned, which was his first ever hunt. He had, he had uh, only bow hunted and that was his first hunting experience was bow hunting. And I said, well, I mean, that's, there's not a lot of guys and gals that get into it that way 
traditionally it starts with gun and then you kind of find out, oh, bow hunting is this awesome way to hunt, right? Not to knock a hunting, just two different ways to do it, right? So just a, a cool interview. Um, I'll go ahead and bring Buck on now. I hope everybody enjoys. If you haven't already given us a rating on iTunes, that stuff means a lot to me because I do this for free. It keeps me going. That's kind of my fuel. And uh, it's good to know that people listen. That's a good way for me to know that you are indeed listening so I can keep doing this. So thank you so much. Enjoy the uh, interview with Buck. All right, cool. So we have with us a, a guest on the line today, Buck Robinson, co-founder and chief marketing officer of Outdoor Access, Inc. Buck, how are you doing today? Doing great, sir. How are you? I'm good. And uh, there's a running joke with this podcast in that uh, I butcher last names. And I'm so thankful anytime I have a guest that has a simple last name. So thank you for that. Happy, happy to oblige. No worries. It's always good to get off to a good start that way. Otherwise, it gets kind of weird pretty quick. So we're on a, we're on a good start here with that. Yeah, and it's always interesting for me with a first name like Buck to be on any kind of hunting podcast. Because like as we get a little bit closer to hunting season, I start to get a little bit itchy. So yeah, it's it's all good. If I if I all of a sudden seem like I'm getting a little bit nervous, don't take it personally. It's just it comes with the name. It comes as part of the territory. Couldn't imagine what that would be like. I, yeah. I dig it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. It's not an alien. Hey, listen, really my parents must have my. Yeah, it's really my name. And my parents, as if my parents were from California and Hawaii, so they had great foresight. They were like, "Wow, we have a real good feel for where this guy's going with his life ahead of him." So yeah, no, imagine? it's it's uh... a. <laughs> crystal ball. <laughs> well, so that's let's, right. Uh, let's unpack just a little bit. I like to get some of these house keeping items out of the way at the beginning of the episode we can re-hit on it at the end sure. but um i like to just start with where people can find you right out of the gate in case you know i don't know people don't make it to the end sometimes right so um i have you on instagram right. facebook so, and you guys have a website yeah we have we have all sorts of social media the the, the number one thing to do is go to our website which is uh world wide web obviously www.outdooraccess dot com uh that similarly our at outdoor access dot com our outdoor access uh handle is our instagram at outdoor access inc is our face uh book uh presence and we also have you know twitter which is outdoor underscore access and linkedin and other stuff too so yeah i mean anything you you might look at for outdoor access you're going to find us um but we've got a pretty Solid following. We've got about almost nine thousand, uh, well, a little bit over nine thousand followers on Facebook, and and uh, quite a few followers on Instagram and stuff too. So it's we and and considering we only launched in September of 2016, so we're the way we look at it is not in terms of years. We look at it in terms of seasons. We're going into our third season. Uh, we've seen a geometric increase in the number of people that have been engaging with our platform so that's been wonderful that's awesome that's that's good growth in a very short time two seasons absolutely super cool and that's how i came to find you guys i think you just showed up on one of my social feeds and you caught my eye so i dug yeah. in a little bit and thought it made sense to reach out so here we are right yes sir so i um like to start with just introducing yourself, general background. I ask a lot of these same questions, but the answers are never the same. So sure. um, that being said, how many years have you been hunting? I don't want to age you too much here, but I like to know. 
Oh, well, listen, I, do we go BC or let's, uh, let's see? Uh, no, I, uh, I actually, and my, my genesis is probably interesting. I, I certainly come from the camp of people who did not grow up hunting. I had no heritage as far as that's concerned. My dad was, <laughs> to say that my dad was the anti-outdoorsman would probably be an understatement. I think we went camping, quote, unquote, camping once, and it was in a, like, block-long uh, RV with three TVs and stuff. So, I mean, like, yeah, definitely did not have that as part of my growth uh, coming up. Um, really actually got into it through archery. Like, when I went to a way to camp one year, uh, there was an archery component, and I kind of thought that was a – cool thing and so i started shooting uh my bow and 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 that evolved into bow hunting and by the time i was about 16 in california um went out and did some exotics hunting in uh like wild pig and 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 goat and sheep and things out in uh channel islands and things and and my family also is from hawaii so did a little boar hunting over there I wouldn't, at that stage in my life, I would not have said I was a hunter. I would say I I went hunting. But it wasn't until I really got into, I moved to the uh, to the East Coast about 20 years ago, so around about 2000. And um, that's when I really started to see the opportunities, but I also realized how I was a little bit of a stranger in a strange land relative to how the whole system worked. And even though I had gone to school in Pennsylvania, and I had done deer hunting a couple of times while I was at school, but, again, it was more of a novelty. It really wasn't until I moved to Virginia in uh, about 20, uh, 2003 that I started to say, okay, like this is something that I'd like to really do on a regular basis. But I also realized as somebody who was coming in at that stage in my life how kind of intimidating it was and how challenging it was to a certain degree as a uh, as a transplant and as somebody who wasn't originally from the area and didn't have all of those yeah, kind of network of connections. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, I was coming in at that stage as somebody who had only really hunted with a bow and really didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about firearms and whatnot. And so. I am I still consider myself a newbie. I still consider myself somebody who's learning the ropes. And that was a an integral part of kind of what led us to create Outdoor Access as something that we saw filled a need, not just for people in that type of a scenario, but also for a lot of folks who just find themselves all of a sudden um, uprooted, like they had a hunting lease, they had some place that they had been going, they had a friend who owned a property or whatever it may be, and then all of a sudden, friend sells a property, friend dies, friend moves, friend whatever, something changes, and all of a sudden they find themselves like, whoops, what happened? Now what am I going to do? And and that we really are very aware of how shocking that can be when you've had something that's kind of been handed to you or that's been kind of just a default and then all of a sudden whammo now what am I going to do or the place that I've been going was great 
and then it wasn't. Like it maybe it's gotten a lot of pressure or there's been a new development that's come next door or whatever. And all of a sudden, things have changed, and now am I going to need to give up because the place that I've had, no, has kind of, the spring has kind of run dry, so to speak. And what we really try to do is be able to provide something that's very malleable and flexible for somebody who says, whatever I'm looking for, I can be able to find. Yeah, I like the idea a lot. And just to, to back up a little bit, I just wanted to point out that you had said you, quote unquote, only hunted with a bow. And I have to say that that is a far more, um, I don't know what the term is, like altruistic way to hunt, right? That's like the, the romantic way to, to get at it. And that's a, a lot of guys that I know here in, in Wisconsin start off with gun hunting through the, you know, the nine day gun season that we have. Right. And, you know, bow hunting is this more intimate thing that is looked at as your, your real hunter. If you hunt with your bow to some degree. Right. And I think that's a, that's a yeah, fantastic story that, that you started with that. And I wouldn't downplay that at all. I think that's awesome. Well, so what's interesting as far as that's concerned in terms of the, the full evolution of that is that, like, so I started with Bo, and, and I actually, I, I quite honestly, until last year, still hunted with a bow that I bought in high school. I mean, I, I, I've never seen a need to upgrade or do all that kind of stuff because it seemed to do the job just fine. So yeah, while I knew there was a lot of new technology, and and like, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, hey, it doesn't seem to be having a problem. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So to a certain degree, that that, that was my reality. And, and of course, like I said, I, I've, I've enjoyed being able to expand the my repertoire, so to speak, of, you know, I hunt with shotgun, I hunt with a rifle, I hunt with a lot of different, a lot of different things now. But one of the things that I actually incorporated last year, and a lot of people, this is, again, one of those things is like, I'll, I'll use the term controversial. I don't think it should be, but it is in some people's cases. Like, I finally kind of kowtowed to the, the crossbow uh, lure and got a crossbow. And <laughs> I got to tell you, those things are a lot of fun. They are a lot of fun to shoot. They are certainly exceptionally effective. And, again, it's not like it's like, okay, well, I'm never going to shoot my compound again, but uh, as yet another, I, I'm just a big believer in people should hunt however they want to go out and hunt. hunt. It's and another, as long as it's, it's ethical, yep. yeah, as long as it's legal and ethical, hey, go out and do it and have well, fun, fun, right? You know what I mean? And so, fun. like, yeah, it is fun. And so I'm like, people want to, like, cheer. I'm like, hey, man, I am a meat hunter through and through. Like, my family I'm not going to say by any stretch of the imagination that we depend on it, but we certainly eat almost exclusively venison. And so from that perspective, i got a responsibility. You know, like my kids and my family are expecting me to put meat in the freezer, and if, if the first couple of deer of the year I can put through with a, a crossbow and be able to make sure that I've kind of checked that box, dude, I'm going to do it because – a, I'm going to have some fun, and B, I kind of feel like I'm meeting my responsibility from a provider perspective. And then from there, it's like, okay, bonus from now on, whatever. But I had a great time hunting with a crossbow last year for the first time. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, there's some sort of weird purist mindset that exists, and that's fine. Great. You can have that. But you know what? If it's available, I don't I don't see the problem with it at all. I don't hunt with them, but, you know, they're, they're not cheap either. And uh, I've shot them, and they are uh... – no. They are hoot to shoot. They just, those things fly, man. It's unreal. 
But you get well, one shot with that, this, right? Because I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna knock another arrow in yeah, that in a, quick it. in a hurry like you can with a you know um, a compound bow. So every once in a while you can get a buck during the rut that's just so preoccupied that you get another shot. But there's a lot of movement involved beyond after the first shot. So the one thing that uh, that we have here though, and I'm and I'm in Virginia, is that and I'm not sure how many of your listeners know this, but like Virginia. I do believe, and, I, and, and again, I, anybody want to call me out on this, whether we have the longest deer season in the United States or one of the longest deer hunt seasons in the United States, it is, it is extraordinarily long. It starts on September 1st, and in many counties in Virginia, it goes all the way until the end of April. Oh, wow. And that is long. Holy during God. that period of time, you can take uh, with a bow – I mean, I don't even know what the legal limit is, but I know that without even needing to buy additional tags, you can take 16 deer. Wow. So, I mean, like, it is, it is, I, and again, I say that to a lot of folks who live in other places where, like, I can shoot a deer a year or two deer a year. Like, in Virginia, uh, and I have sat down with folks from the Department of Game and Mineral Fisheries, they're like, in certain parts of the state, we are literally at war with the deer and we are losing. And so you can shoot. I mean, we had one member of our outdoor access uh, on a 1.1-acre urban archery property in Fairfax, Virginia, last year, which is right adjacent to Washington, Mm D.C., shoot 14 deer. One guy shot 14 deer on that. Wow. So it is – we have a very different – seasonality and a very different approach in this particular state and the reality is while a lot of people might be like blown away by that there's there's we're not even trying to stem the tide i mean we had we have some landowners who are like i'm actually upset that you don't have people out here more often i'm like sir we took like 13 deer off of your properties like yeah, but what about the 45 others that are out there eating my azaleas and stuff? So, I mean, like, it's it's that type of feeling of, like, holding back the tide. So you can hunt with a bow from September 1st through the end of, actually, the first weekend in November. Then it switches to gun season. And not that you can't hunt with a bow during that, but, I mean, like, then the firearms kick in. And then at the end of firearm season, where it's typically the last, the end of the first week in January, there is another urban archery season that kicks in that goes until the end of March, and in some in some markets until the end, or in some counties until the end of April. So it's crazy. It's six months, six That's months of deer season. We go from September to January for bow with the nine-day gun season that you know, happens inside of that in November. And then we have a muzzleloader season towards the end. And sometimes they throw in a holiday hunt or something, but yeah, that's a long time. That's a really long time. Yeah. And even our gun season is almost 60 days. So, I mean, like it's, that's crazy. You're you're shooting deer that their antlers may have fallen off at that point, you know? (laughs) Well, and so that's one of the things that we try to explain to people is like, in a lot of these suburban environments where, if the deer aren't being harvested by hunters, they're going to end up on, you know, on the road, right? The predators they're having to deal with are Toyotas and Chevys and, and, you know, <laughs> Dodges is like, like they're going to end up 
either doing damage to a person or property, or they're going to end up um, in a situation where because of overpopulation, there's starvation or, or disease or whatever it may be. And so for a lot of these areas, it's, it, you know, it, and it seems like, and this is, again, I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to open up a Pandora's box of argument within hunters because heaven knows hunters can find ways to argue with each other for almost anything. But the the point is that you have these areas where there is an epidemic of deer overpopulation. And the the state has basically sanctioned, I mean, in some of these counties, there is no limit. There's no, you can, in, in most of the state of Virginia, you can shoot two deer a day. It, there's no limit in some of these counties. And what the rationale there is, is like, okay, so people will say, well, what about the bucks that have dropped their, their antlers? Like, okay, yeah, it's, it's a deer. We want the deer to be shot. Uh, what about the does that are pregnant and they're carrying fawns? They're like, yeah, those are fawns we don't want to have born. Like, I mean, so it's, it's controversial within the hunting population, but to these these counties that are very highly populated, they're like, hey, listen, the deer have come in, they've established themselves, and they are breeding like rabbits. And either we find a way to manage them in a way that provides a, you know, a harvest and that those deer can be utilized, or we're going to bring in professional hunters and just shoot them. And that's going to be that. And so I, I think we're in an interesting situation and in, in, in more and more urban markets, they may be looking at what Virginia is doing and trying to figure out how to, how to either follow suit or learn from it. But it is a very unique situation that we find ourselves in. And that was part of what we actually, what we launched outdoor access around was urban archery. And, and the reason was very simple. We had a very clear population of landowners who were saying, I have a problem. I need a solution. What, who can help me? And we had a very clear population of demand in the form of hunters saying, hey, I don't know which of these suburban houses is willing to allow me to set up a tree stand in their backyard. And it's hard for me to drive around and knock on doors, right? Yep. So how do I know where to go? I want to do it, but I don't know where to go. And so the state had established this season, and yet neither the demand side or the supply side was really engaging in it, so it wasn't accomplishing anything. And what we ended up doing was setting up this program that helped right in within two seasons. Right now, outdoor access represents about – a third of all of the deer harvested during urban out, ur, urban archery season in Virginia are coming as a result of our properties. So, like, we took the entire program and within two years boosted it by 33% plus because there was such a, you know, like, the state kind of had this mentality of, like, if we build it, they will come. And unfortunately, like a lot of government programs, they didn't really kind of connect the dots. And what we saw was, as a private enterprise, an opportunity to come in and connect those dots. But then beyond that, saw lots of other opportunities beyond just these urban uh, urban archery opportunities to be able to provide benefits to both landowners and hunters. So, and it's and it's it's taken off. You have adoption, and people are using it. There's benefit coming from that, from from the sounds of it. 
some well, success there? Or? Well, so so we started uh, we started with and and this is kind of the, the 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 funny genesis is that we started with 13 properties that averaged three acres, and now we have about 400 and almost 450 properties that average about 150 acres. Um, and we started with our first member in September of 2016. We're now um, looking at growing it to about 5,000 members in Virginia and North Carolina by the end of this season. And we have, um, like, in our first season, so September through what we would call March, uh, we had about 500 reservations in uh, 2016-17. In 2017-18, we had about 4,500 reservations, which is the number of days where people were out on properties hunting. And this year, we're expecting that number to top 10,000. Wow, that's awesome. So it's interesting because you talk about this urban kind of bow hunting, and I never, I've actually, I've never actually heard that term. And I think that I might even fall within that term now that I realize it. But when I started where to hunt, I started around the context of, I don't want to travel three plus hours, four hours, five hours, um, to just go bow hunting to the land where I go when I go gun hunting, because bow season is a longer season. It's warmer climate. I don't have to have, you know, layers and layers of clothes. Sure. And so, you know, if I could dump yeah, work yeah. early or, or what have you, and I, or it's just a Saturday and I want to just go right after work or on the Saturday morning or evening or whatever that looks like, I don't have to drive four hours. I want to just go somewhere in my quote unquote backyard within an hour's drive. And, um, your vision well, so, and what so you're one doing of the things that would certainly fill that need here, we don't have the, the population problem, but we have an access problem. So. That's interesting. So here's so here, here's exact here is like when I say in many ways and it wasn't built around this but it was it's just it's re reflective of it is that when I started hunting I, I live in in Richmond and we're headquartered in Richmond Virginia but like when I started hunting here locally I found a friend who had a property a beautiful absolutely gorgeous property in um, uh, Buckingham County in Virginia. And it was three uh, 300 acres, and it was a three-hour round-trip drive to go there. And I went there, uh, and I still go there. Don't get me wrong. I still love to hunt there. But I would go there three times, four times a season because it was just – it was a full day. It was, I'd leave before the sun came up. I'd come home after the sun came down. It was that, that was that was just part and parcel to it. And, and I, as I'm sure – some of your uh, your listeners can relate. I caught a lot of grief from my wife, especially because <laughs> I have three yep. young children, yep. for being gone for those three or four days. And so one of the things that was kind of instrumental in when we set up outdoor access was convenience. And the vast, vast, vast majority of our, our members and our, our landowners are within an hour's drive of one another. And actually – most of them are within 25 minutes. So the idea of saying, hey, I, this is, I have a desire to do this. I would like to do it more often than I do, but logistically, I just, I just can't. I want to, but what am I supposed to do about it? And now all of a sudden, here comes this service that allows you to have the opportunity to, instead of knocking on doors, find landowners within 10 miles, 15 miles of your house 
that you can be able to go to that are asking you, said like freely saying, I would like you to come out to my property and, and you have full legal permission to hunt on it. You know, you have to go through this process and you have to go through a background check and you have to book it and I need to know you're coming out and all the different things. But to create a, a methodology where that supply and demand can find each other in a far more efficient uh, way and then for you to be able to get out into a tree, you know, instead of two, three, four times a year, you can get two, three times, four times a week in order to be able to hunt more often. And you're happier because you're out there having more opportunity to be able to harvest deer. The landowner is happy because they want you to harvest those deer. And everybody wins in the scenario because, it, and, and that's one of the reasons why we have really focused on folks who are sitting here saying not, hey, I've got lots of hunting opportunity. Um, this is a novelty that provides me with more options and variety. We're looking at the person who's sitting there saying, I gave up hunting because I didn't have a place to go. And so it wasn't for lack of desire. It was purely for lack of opportunity. And now that we provide them with an opportunity, guess what? Those people are buying hunting licenses again or getting back out in the field. And we as an as the hunting ecosystem, and I mean this on a national level, sure. yep. are very aware of the fact that hunting numbers are way down and, 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 and the trend is not positive. And so one of the things that was really fulfilling for us at the end of last season, as we sent out a survey to our members, was to, you know, ask them how, well, you know, when was the last time you went hunting? And a full, a third of the people that hunted with us last year had either never hunted before or hadn't hunted in at least two years. And so that concept of providing a methodology to not only get new blood into the ecosystem, but also to bring those other people back. I mean, the, like one of the, the like the the terminology of the of the industry is R three, which is you know recruit, retain, and reactivate. We're both recruiting and reactivating at record numbers. And and the number one reason why people give up hunting or don't take it on in the first place isn't because of lack of desire or because they don't know what they're doing. It's just access. Where am I going to go? If I don't have a place to go do it, where am I going to go do it? And for, unfortunately, and this is one of the things that, you know, we had kind of mentioned is that, like, for a lot of folks, and this is in no way, shape, or form, trust me, I am a huge advocate of the blessings that we have as a country and having the amount of public land that we have available to us, and I think it is absolutely positively something that is a national treasure and that we need to continue to protect and try and get as many people to enjoy as possible. But let's face it, there's a lot of people who simply are not comfortable hunting on public land. It's, it, it, whether it's perception or reality, there's the, the idea that it is something that, like, A, it's the hardest land to hunt, and B, it may even be potentially dangerous. And a huge portion of our membership base are dads who are trying to introduce their kids to this this lifestyle that they love, and they're just not willing to take their kids out on public land where they don't have control over who's going to be out there, what's going to happen, and whatnot. So to be able to provide those folks with an access, exclusive access, not just access, but exclusive access to private land where they can reserve 
that property for their use for a day or a weekend or a week or whatever they might want to be able to do at a cost that's going to be considerably less than if they were to join a traditional hunt club or to go on some kind of an outfitter type of hunt really fills a need that we feel in the marketplace like, okay, if you've got if you got ten thousand dollars to burn, you want to go on an outfitter hunt. Well, yeah, God bless you. That's that, great. Right? Yeah, those people Not, are going to do that. You know, that. God bless you. That and 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 listen, that's great. God bless you. That, that that but that's not the every man's experience. And so somewhere between that and I'm going out on public land and some bozo walks through my setup and you know whatever, we wanted to create something that just created an alternative opportunity for more people to get out there and some people call us like the airbnb of hunting and things like that and and to a certain degree it's like that because we do have private landowners who are making access to their properties available on a fractional basis so it's not a seasonal lease you're not coming in and paying hundreds or thousands of dollars to be able to lease the property for the entire year you're only using it. You're you're basically renting it for the it's days hunting, that you want to be out yeah, there. It's hunting land on demand, right? It's like I don't I don't want to buy the cable package to watch every channel. I just want to watch HBO, right? Just give me what I want when I want. That's exactly right. Yeah. So so and and on and one of the things that we made very clear from the get go, and this is just kind of fundamental to who we are as a company, was to say, listen, a lot of these landowners. It, and this is something that we've, you know, now dealt with hundreds and hundreds of times. It's not a function of, A, they just don't want to have people out there. In fact, quite the contrary. A lot of these landowners really love their land, and they love it, and they want to be able to share it with people. And whether their children have grown up or their grandchildren have grown up and nobody's coming out and really enjoying the property or they're not able to enjoy the property the way that they used to, they really, truly want people to enjoy this land, it's their most precious asset. But they're not going to just take somebody who knocks on their door and says, hey, I'd like to come out and hunt your land, and guess what? I'll stack your wood for you in repayment. <laughs> they're like, I, you know, well, listen, I hate to say it, but we're in a day and age where they're like, who the heck are you? I don't know what you're, who you are. Yep. And, yeah, well, and it's not even money. It's like, what happens if while you're out there you hurt yourself and then sue me and I lose my property because I was letting you have come out on my property. So one of the things that we immediately addressed were twofold. One, we put everything, everybody through a background check. And that's not to be judgmental. It's just to be able to make sure that you are who you say you are. And that there's no reason for this, this landowner to feel any trepidation about having you come out on their property. And we've had, we have, we have thousands of members. That doesn't mean we haven't had a couple of folks that have failed the background check in and for good reason. I mean, it's not like they got, you know, a DUI once when they were 16. I mean, like, these are folks that you, you know would not want to have on any knocks on your door. And doing this, this is just right. like the and that's just scenario, it. right? Now you have some context on what you're dealing with. Yeah, you, and you have a vetting process to be able to make sure the folks that are coming out are who they say they are and that they're somebody you feel comfortable having a weapon on your property. Yep. And then the second part is that we provide that landowner with complete liability. Actually, both landowner and member with with complete liability insurance so that, God forbid, something should happen, that landowner is not going to be in a position where they're going to lose their property because they were willing to allow somebody to have access to it. And, God forbid, 
that member does something like they shoot somebody or whatever, and all of a sudden they have no coverage, and we're able to be able to provide them for the days that they're out there on that property as a on a reservation to have the coverage to be able to make sure that they can be out there and have that peace of mind. Yes, so you're better than an Airbnb. That was a huge component of that. Yeah, Airbnb, you some homeowners insurance doesn't cover people who stay with you as an Airbnb. So I think you got you got to correct. There. <laughs> And, and it's interesting to think there was a day and age when, like, you know, in a populated city like New York or whatever, you'd literally flag a taxi cab driver down with your hand and then get into their car and you'd have right. a cash exchange. You'd have cash on you. There's all sorts of variables that that seemed that was just how we live life. And now people get pissed off when their Uber driver is more than three minutes away. You know, so I see right. you and, doing something similar in the space where we'll be able to say, well, there was a point in time when people used to knock on people's doors. You know, and and now well, and, I'm mad because I don't have my my land, you know, booked out for the whole season, right, or whatever that is going to look like. But it's just it's a disruptive thing. Well, and that's and that's the other thing is that I mean, like you look at it. I mean, it, again, it comes back to this this mentality of um, it's I I have to either have it all or nothing, and and that and we do get this all the time from people who are like. Well, I really want to lease the property for the full year. And I'm like, why? What are you going to do with it all year? Like, I mean, like, don't you understand that if you're willing to have, and that's not to say that we're not willing to offer it because this year we actually will, will have for the first time seasonal rentals where somebody may say, hey, listen, there's a, there's a I do want to rent it out for the entirety of the, right? uh, yeah, I want to rent it out for the, for the, the whole bow season or the whole, uh, muzzle loader season or whatever, and that's fine. We understand that. There's people want to come out and scout and do all this kind of stuff, and then that's great. And and by no means are, are we trying to to uh, prevent them from being able to do that. But during the spring and during the summer and times of the year when you're not using the property, allow other people to be able to come out and use it for other outdoor recreational purposes, so that the landowner has a year-long cash flow that allows them not to be trying to charge you the entire year's worth of cost just for hunting. You know what I mean? Like if, if they were to say, Hey, listen, to, to come out and use my property for the year, it's going to cost you seven or eight or $9 per acre. If all of a sudden they're like, Hey, well, but I'm willing to charge you only, you know, $200 to come out and do it for the entire hunting season because they know that they have this other cash flow that can come from people that are going to be coming out and utilizing it for bird watching and fishing and camping and all these other things, that's better for everybody because now it's cheaper for you to do what you want to be able to do. It's better for the landowner because he's actually making more money from a wider, a more diverse base of cash so that that's of demand. So he's got a lot of more people that are paying for him to be able to get access to his property. And, and in that scenario, now all of a sudden, You've got a landowner who's happy and saying, yeah, how do I make this more available to people, not less available? And that's one of the things we heard time and time and time again was the places that used to be available to me aren't available anymore. And so, therefore, the, like, the, the pie kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And what we came in was to be able to say, okay, well, how do we make the pie bigger and, and do so in a way that incentivizes both landowner and user to, to get into the kitchen and bake it together. Like let's let's work together to make this pie bigger because it's better for both of us, you know? That makes sense. And you'll know when you get to like 
some sort of crescendo of adoption because it, you know whatever I keep referencing Uber, I don't know why, <laughs> but the Uber model is like, well, now that there's yeah. so much, so many, so many drivers, well, now you have to start differentiating yourself. What is your driver rating? Are you handing out mints and what right. radio station are you listening to? What are you going to do to entertain me? That is going to make me want to choose you over the next guy. So at some point there might be a tipping point where you have people going above and beyond to make sure they are drawing in and attracting, um, you know, hunters or recreators to their. Well, it's, fun- it's funny you say that because like, even though we're in our second, season we've we've completed two seasons we're going into our third season the reality is we've already seen that so like in year one there was a lot of the early adopters and and so it was not a a critical mass of uh land but it was the the people that were coming on were kind of like oh yeah no let's let's see what this is like in year two we went from 80 properties to about 300 properties so it grew geometrically and then what ended up happening in year three is we're going into our third season right now. We have landowners who are like, okay, well, like if in year one and two, I was just kind of saying, ah, oh, crossing my arms and skeptically looking at this and saying, is this for real? Now they've gotten, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in checks. They're like, hey, this is, this is pretty good. Like, how do I make it even better? And so one of the things that we, go back to them with is to be able to say, okay, well, listen, you have a beautiful property, but man, there are significant areas that need to be bush hogged. There are other areas that, you know, it would, it would be beneficial to put in a food plot here or hang a couple of tree stands and things. So one of the things we're working with the landowner is ways that they can make the property itself more attractive, more user-friendly, more turnkey, so that in turn, the member who's coming out is like, hey, this is great. I've already got, uh, uh, you know, I've got, I've seen what's on the trail cams. I've seen what's in the, I've got a tree stand that I don't need to go hang. It's already hung for me. I've got a food plot that I'm sitting on top of. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I didn't have to do any of it. It was all done on a turnkey basis. And it's still costing me 20, 25 bucks a day. Great. So, like, I can come out and be able to hunt for a weekend for 50 bucks instead of joining a traditional hunt club where I'm only going to come out and hunt for a couple of weekends anyway, and it's cost me $500. So, I mean, like, that's where we're coming at, at it and saying, how are there ways that we can be able to make this something that, that benefits both parties, that makes both the landowner say, oh, great, I'm seeing a better return on investment with a very little risk on my part. And I'm, uh, as a member, I'm seeing that I'm getting the value and convenience that I'm looking for. And so it helps more folks. And, and listen, I, I, I can hear it already as far as some of the folks listening to this right now will say, this is the commercialization of hunting. This is, I'm like, no, listen, man, this is not the commercial. This is capitalism. And this is what we're trying to do is apply good, <laughs> wholesome capitalist principles in a way that helps the hunting ecosystem survive. And that's one of the things that is one of the, like, doctrines of us as a company and what we are all about is to be able to say, help more people engage in a, in a vital tradition to be able to keep that tradition alive in a way that, yes, it's new and it's novel and it's taking advantage of some of the shared economy type of platforms that other people are doing, but we're doing it in a way that is also very cognizant of how this, what needs to happen. Like, I mean, how this needs to be perpetuated. Because 
if we sit back and say, well, that's just not the way it used to be, well, guess what? I don't have a time machine. I have no ability nothing to take us back the to same. the 1950s. Yeah, nothing stays the same. And really, yeah. like no, the guys I, that, I, I, that would I, I, be I, complaining are the same guys that thought it was innovative to go buy the Platt book, right, and spend a bunch of money on that. And, you know, there was right. probably some debate way back then about that, right? We could go all the way back to, you know, cars and and horses, you know, gas v oats. It's, yeah, it's some Dan like, Gummit, you know, these newfangled inventions and stuff. I'm like, hey, listen, man, either you can enjoy the things that you that you like to do in a new and novel way, or you can sit back and be bitter about the way that it isn't the way that it used to be. And 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 I'm sorry, this gets but I would much words. rather work I, I in a pond. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, and that's what it's all about. Like fundamentally this is and this is one of the things that i think is very important is to say and i'm sure you can relate to this listen one of the things that i fear for as i look in my crystal ball for our society is because more people are spending all their time either stuck in a car in an office chair or whatever they're they're we're staring at their at their their mobile device it's less time spent outside. It's less time spent engaging with God's creation. It's t- less time spending with nature. And that is not good. That is not a good scenario. So we are 100% committed to the idea of saying if we can provide a way that people can go out and conveniently and economically go out and engage in nature in a way that gives them that kind of experience that makes them say, oh, okay. I'm rejuvenated again. I'm centered again. I'm not stressed out again. I'm whatever. Well, that is a positive thing, not just for that individual. Yeah, I was going to say, if that screen time can be converted into productivity, into getting into that land, and you could plot out your whole hunting season through what you guys are doing. You know, get, and, then, and then you're not having <laughs> The funny part about it is that we say it's like, you, you, like, use the screen time to get away from the screen time. And that's one of our things is like, Hey, use your device to get the hell away from your device. Yep. And that's what we really want people to be able to do is like, hey, here's a technology that allows people to find what they're looking for so that they don't have to spend time looking for what they're looking for. Like, just get, go out and go have fun. And, and, and more importantly, introduce your friends, your family, your kids, your whatever, your neighbors. I don't care. Get them outdoors, too. Get, take somebody who hasn't had that experience in, a, in an environment where he's like, hey, listen, is it, I was like, hey, is this your 200 acres? Today it is. You know, like today, this is my 200 acres. And so let's go out and have some fun, catch some fish, shoot some targets, whatever, and do so in a way that that person who has never done that before says, hey, that was really awesome. I'd really like to do that again. Because that's what we need. We need to make it less insular, like, hey, you didn't grow up doing this and you weren't from around here and blah, 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 whatever, and make it more inclusive and be like, hey, listen, I know you grew up in the city or whatever. Have you ever been out to a, a, a nice place in the country and been able to go out and, you know, shoot some, shoot some squirrels or doing whatever? And they're like, no, I've never done that. Great. We provide that opportunity for people to be able to help introduce folks and in our program, guests are free. So you can take folks out and introduce them to the woods in a way that all of a sudden makes it less intimidating and it makes it a lot more inclusive. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, we've covered the questions that I have. 
and the the passion is spilling out of your out of your voice here, and and so it's clear that you're, you're driven and set on a mission to to solve this problem of access. Um, when when can us Wisconsinites and Midwesterners who listen, and we do have listeners all across the country, so I know some of them might be in your neck of the woods. Right. I just think that the the greater majority of people are rooted here, but in that in that in that same sense, when what do your growth plans look like coming out um, west? So, hey, listen, both my my part, my business partner and I are are not twenty something wonderkins. We're forty uh, something uh, seasoned veterans who have done this before, and so one of the things that we've learned and looked at uh, the you know the littered bodies along the road for people who have tried to do things like this before is that when you try to go too far too fast, it doesn't work. And 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 I actually we actually spend a lot of time with the folks from uh, comparable um, shared economy type platforms um, like Lyft and and like Airbnb and spend a considerable amount of time both talking with them and sharing notes. And one of the things that you hear time and time again from any of these marketplace type of uh, business models is that it's all about balance. And so one of the things that we've been very disciplined about is creating a balance, not because we don't see that there's need for our program all over the place. It's like, okay, but we need to understand the dynamics. We have to understand the drivers. We have to understand the pitfalls. We have to understand the life cycle. We have to understand all of these different variables that can have a dramatic effect. So we started in Virginia. And our first season was exclusively in Virginia. Our second season was in Virginia and North Carolina. Okay, as we're now entering our third season, we're doing Virginia, North Carolina, Delaware, Maryland, West Virginia, and some parts of Pennsylvania. That is really also being done at the same time where we're growing both in Virginia and North Carolina. So, I mean, like, yes, we're expanding into new markets, but we're really going deeper into the markets where we're already "Quote unquote established." Yep, yep. In 2009, so that's 2018 into 19. 2019 and 20, the intention is to be able to grow the entirety of well, I shouldn't say the entirety of the Eastern United States, but essentially from New York to Georgia. All right. Okay. And there's reason there's reasons for that relative to challenges in the Northeast beyond New York and also in Florida. So we're kind of looking at it as the better part of the mid-Atlantic and the, med- the Atlantic coastline. And to the, the next year after that, we'll start to push to the Mississippi. So essentially look at it as we're going to go up and down a little bit, and then we're going to go west. And so you could be expecting us within the next two years, and in each market that we go into, we're being very cognizant of the needs and particular situations of that marketplace and and making sure that we're doing something that's not meant to be disruptive to the to the public market to the public land and this is not trying to take away from that it's really meant to be very complementary in such a way that somebody says hey i have more options now it's not about taking options away from people it's about creating more options for people and we have tons of people, trust me, we have members already right here in Virginia who are like, hey, I'm a member of Vaughn Club, and I love it, and I use it during deer season, but my 
hunt club that I go to and the property that we have doesn't have any ducks on it. So if I want to hunt ducks, I use an outdoor access property to be able to give me access to properties with ducks. doesn't mean I have to join a whole other hunt club. Yeah, it just means that I have a whole other place that I can be able to go. Yeah, it gives you more choices to be able to do more of what you want to be able to do, not more exclusionary and not more in a way that it's like, and again, our, our biggest thing, and this is one of the things that we are absolutely, you know, adamant, is that this whole idea that these vital pastimes, that these vital traditions, that these things that are transformative would only be available to people who can pay thousands of dollars is anathema to us. I mean, like, there's nothing that I'm more adamantly against than this concept that only the people who have the means are can afford to have this kind of experience, because this is an experience that's been transformative in my life, and it's, a, it's something that I feel that is vital to our country. I, I expose my children to it. I get them out there as often as I possibly can, and I think we have to hold on to it and fight for it vigorously. And this idea that it's only available to those who have the means to pay for it is crazy. That doesn't mean that you can get it for free because these landowners aren't going to make their properties available with no in return on investment. Otherwise, yep. they're going to have to sell their properties. Yep. So we, we were also very cognizant that we have landowners who are like, hey, I want to charge as little as I possibly can to be able to make this worthwhile, but I need to charge something. And and that's where we again our average cost right now is about twenty to twenty five dollars per day. But even then, about a third of our properties don't charge anything at all. That's fascinating. That's really something. I mean, here in Wisconsin, we have uh, a tax break program called um, Managed Forest Law (MFL) land, and the DNR had exploited not the DNR, but someone from like a local you know news publication had exploited a, a hole in that. Mm-hmm. Where, and these, these property owners were landlocking um, some of this land. So it was it was for public use, but it was surrounded by private land with no access. You couldn't actually get to it without trespassing, and they were still receiving this tax break. And the, the tax break was, you know, predicated on them allowing public access. And um, once that kind right. of got exploited, it, it kind of drew a lot of attention to that program and has since kind of improved, and there's ways into that quote-unquote landlocked um, you know, public access area now. And then there's what we have, uh, it's called VPA, Voluntary Public Access, where you can just simply volunteer to have your land um, used for public access. And there, there does, it takes away some of that tax stuff. But, you know, if you guys were in 2020 and you're here, you know, that just helps kind of spread the blob around a little bit, you know, of all the hunters. We have 600,000-ish gun hunters that, you know, buy tags in the state every year. And um, in terms yep. of public land hunting, certain areas get pretty crowded pretty quick, and it's used, you know, to where everyone knows that they can go based on what the, the awareness is. And if there's more options, suddenly we're all spread out a little bit more with some breathing room and less pressure, and hopefully a happier hunting population, right? Well, and and, and it's a happier hunting population, a safer pub, hunting population a more effective hunting population and actually achieving what they're looking to be able to do and, and actually managing the, the deer herd and whatnot. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways that it can be done better. 
And all we're looking to do is, again, not trying to usurp any of the existing methods that are out there and whatnot. It's simply to provide another option for people that's going to give them, based on what their time availability is, what their, uh, you know, what their convenience is, and be able to say, hey, I'm, I just don't have, you know. And, and listen, I, I look at it as a dad who's got kids in soccer during hunting season and stuff. I'm like, hey, listen, if I can be in a tree every morning and then still make my kids soccer game on a Saturday afternoon, that's, that's better for everybody. It's good. Yeah, like, it's, it's good for, for my mentality. It's good for my, it's good for my marriage. It's good for my kids. So, I mean, it's like looking and, and adapting the, 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 the activity to the way life it lives is lived this, these days. It's like, okay, we're trying to create something that makes it less binary and more of like more flexible. And, and I really feel like, and, and, and you know, again, we have thousands and thousands of members who have booked tens of thousands of hunts over the last couple of years is to be able to look at it and say, okay, we see that it's working. It's not a theory. We're not saying, hey, we hope this is going to, we know that it's, and that doesn't mean that we're resting on our laurels in any way, you know, tired and yet like not trying to improve it. We are absolutely every day looking and taking feedback from our members on ways that we can improve it. But it, it's a novel approach to a problem. And, and, and anybody who has their head in the sand and doesn't acknowledge that hunting has a problem if it doesn't make itself more accessible to folks and make it more, itself more, uh, you know, easier for people to consume is deluding themselves. Yep, and one of the things that we are very adamant on is to be able to say, hey, listen, guys, it take, we're going to need to, we can't keep doing things the same old, same old. We've got to try something new. And here's something that we've seen proven out in other in other uh, you know areas and in other industries, why don't we apply some of that to what we're doing and see if it can't make it a little bit better? And so far, and again, knock on wood, so far the results have been very, very positive. And you know who's actually been the most uh, adamant supporters of us has actually been the uh, Department of Game and Inland Fisheries here in Virginia because in their mentality they're like hey listen especially with this urban archery it's about getting the deer under control and now they're actually seeing that happen and so they are huge advocates saying hey listen this is actually helping us accomplish two main goals getting the deer under control and getting more uh hunting licenses sold and we can check both of those boxes so as we go to more and more states and they're looking at those same kind of challenges to be able to have a proven methodology for it, I, I, that's a win-win. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I mean, it's just a, it's a great thing that you're doing. And I, I totally see the vision. And, you know, the, the guys that are more guarded about, you know, doing things, things the old way, it's, that's akin to the, the guy that's trying to, you know, not share anything about his expertise and his role at work because he wants job security. But, in fact, that's hurting the business and not helping it succeed as a whole. So, really, like – People need to zoom out past themselves and realize that, you know, we're we're trying to help conservationism as a, as a whole for the nation, um, not make sure you still yeah. have your little spot, right, and, and slice of heaven. Like, this will give you a whole yeah. mess of slices of heaven. For the right? folks that are sitting waxing, yeah, that are sitting there, the folks that are sitting there waxing nostalgic of the way it used to be, are the folks that are sitting there saying, "But I don't understand why we can't." I mean, there was a novel 
artisanal type of uh, value to buggy whips. Okay, listen, we don't need buggy whips anymore. We've got cars now, all right? So world has changed. I'm not saying that buggy whip manufacturers were wonderful people, but but listen, the way the life the lifestyle changed and the world needs to change with it. And we need to look at it and say, hey, listen, there are more and more of these properties falling into private hands. And those private hands are looking at it and saying, dude, without proper, without proper liability protection, without properly vetting you, without giving me control over when I want to have people and when I don't want to have people out and all stuff, I'm just going to make it not available to anyone. And one of the things that we're saying is, no, no, it's your land. You do what you you lay the rules out, you lay the price out, you lay whatever it is, and then it's a marketplace. And then and then if people aren't willing to pay what you what you're charging, listen, then maybe you need to lower your price. But it's not a matter of like you can't get out here. You can just set rules that make it available to people to be able to know. Okay, well if I want to be able to come out and enjoy your property, and I want to be able to enjoy it at a at a price that I feel is fair. Then I'm going to do that, and we and all we do as a company is facilitate that transaction in a way that provides protection to both sides and allows the landowner not to be in a position where like, well, if I'm not there, how am I going to know that they're there? Well, we, again, we apply a lot of I simplified it, but we apply a lot of technology to be able to know when the person's checked in, when the person is checked out, processing all of the payments, making sure that if something happens and that person needs to change their reservations, we can shift that around for them. And I mean, like, again, we're taking technology that's available to every other marketplace that's out there and bringing it in the convenience that goes along with it to a space that has, quote, unquote, been so traditional that it's actually gotten in its own way. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. Well, let's, um, I'm going to shift gears here. I'm going to, I'm going to bring into the, the, the the um, most memorable hunting story if you have one and I think considering <laughs> your upbringing with you know starting at 16 and and you know being able to hunt in Hawaii and and all the different you know hunted way more animals than I've ever hunted and I never actually did ask knowing that you have hunted so many animals is, is it sounds like whitetail or is that your new favorite animal to hunt? It well I would say this it is certainly my favorite animal to eat. Okay. I would definitely say that pigs pigs are still my favorite animal to hunt. But okay, cool. but, but deer are abs- Bambi is absolutely my favorite animal to eat. That's good to know. And so like what's your what is your most memorable hunting story? Funny, crazy, sentimental, whatever. Gosh, so I I'll tell you this crazy story. So and and this is a crazy story and it's 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 I don't know that it's my best hunting story, but it's certainly one that I think would make a few folks laugh, especially because of the fact that it underscores. So again, I, I had never gun hunted. Um, and I was dating a girl when I moved to Virginia and, uh, she happened to mention that her, uh, stepfather was a hunter and a very, very avid hunter. And so in an effort to both kind of ingratiate myself with him and the family, all this stuff, he invited me to go hunting and I'm like, okay, great. So we we were sitting in his uh, in their family uh, basement, and he brought out this arsenal of guns. And he's like, "Okay, well, hey, we're gonna go out tomorrow. Which of these guns do you want to use?" And I kid you not, I mean, I, I I'm old enough and 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 not vain enough to be able to admit 
I literally looked at it and said, it was almost like an eeny, meeny, money mo. I mean, it was like, I picked the gun that looked the most like the BB gun that I had had as a kid. <laughs> and so I'm like, how about that one? I, had, I didn't even ask him, like, like, what caliber is that or whatever. He's like, mm, good choice. Yeah, that's a great one. And I'm like, okay. So okay, we okay. go the next morning before, before daybreak to, to, you know, out into the, the – he, he lived in Maryland, but we were driving out to basically the Maryland-West Virginia border. And we got out there, and there was a bunch of guys at the deer camp, and, and he introduced me. And it was awkward because it was, like, the first time that I was ever meeting any of these guys. And, yeah, yeah. Anyway, whatever. So I was a newbie, right? So all of these guys are very experienced deer hunters. They, they hunted this property a 100 times and blah, 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 blah. And so there was a lot of discussions before we all went out to our respective stands as to where they should put me as the, quote, unquote, California guy who was coming out to hunt for the, quote, unquote, first time. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to make any waves. So they're like, well, let's put him closest to the camp. So they basically chose this deer stand that was within walking distance of the camp. So for all intents and purposes, as far as all the smells and all the other issues, like, this was the worst stand in the place, right? But they have figured this little, you know, this, this tenderfoot isn't going to stand, stay out there 10 minutes. So we'll just make it so that it's easy for him to walk back. All right. So day breaks and they go off on their ATVs. They, yeah, they send off on their ATVs to go off and to their respective better stands and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the, the sun is just breaking. Just breaking the horizon, suddenly it sounds like World War III up there. I mean, it is like, what on earth is going on? Again, for a bow hunter, I'm used to the silence of bow hunting. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is happening here? Like, how can you guys even see what you're shooting at? So I'm like, all right. This, and then it starts snowing, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is just horrible, right? So I'm of the very real opinion that if I see a deer, this has been a successful hunt. It's, I don't even I'm mean, again I'm sitting in a stand with a gun I've never shot before. I have no idea. It's not like I've sighted in the rifle or anything. I'm not, I've never even shot the damn thing before. So all of a sudden I see a deer off to my left and I'm like, Oh, look, a deer. So great. It was it was bucks only, so it was a doe, and I'm like, Okay, great. Consider this, check the mark, this is a successful hunt. Well, oh, look, there's another one behind him. And another one and another one and another one. So anyway, 25 deer later, oh there are 25 deer that have walked past my stand, all of them does or fawns, wow. and all of them to my left. So I literally rotated in my, in, my, in my very small tree stand, which, again, this was the first time I'd ever been in a tree stand in my entire life. So I'm scared to death. I'm a totally a phobic of heights. So I'm like, whatever. Anyway, all of these deer have come from the exactly same direction, and not one of them was a buck. All of a sudden, I hear a noise behind me, and I turn, and there is, and they had been telling me, well, listen, if the buck is, you know, has at least an inch spike or whatever, it's legal, all, all these things that were like the minimum. Here <laughs> is this great, eight, you know, what we would call uh, four points on each side, so an eight-punt buck, as far as we're concerned, that's a considerable buck that's following this doe. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, God, there's this deer, and it's 20 yards. It's right underneath my tree following this doe, and I'm facing entirely the wrong direction because it came from behind me. 
So now all of a sudden I have to rotate slowly, slowly, slowly in my chair. And I'm thinking to myself, and again, stupid as this may be, I don't, again, I'm not advocating this, but I had no safety strap on or anything like that. I was sitting in the street stand. I'm about to fire a gun I've never fired before. And I'm like, this damn gun might blow me right the hell out this tree. So I'm like, there's a lot of trepidation about taking this shot. So I decide, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'm just going to point between these two trees. And if he happens to walk between these two trees, I'm going to let it rip. So long story short, I've never shot a deer before in my life. The deer walks between the trees. I pull the trigger. 20 yards later, I watch him fall over dead. I don't have a knife. I don't have a, anything. Nobody had told me what to do if I actually shot a deer because nobody expected me to shoot a deer. This was not supposed to happen. I'm this stupid California kid who's out here sitting in a tree next to the next to the, the camp with a gun he's never shot before. All right. So the the story gets even crazier, right? So now I go over. I I had, I check the deer, make sure he's dead. I'm like, okay, well now what the hell am I supposed to do? I don't have a knife. I don't have anything. So I walk back up to the road. I kid you not, as if an angel had appeared from heaven, this jalopy of a car comes down the road. And I wave the guy down, and he's like, what you doing? I'm like, hey, dude, I just shot this deer. I don't I, – first of all, I need some help getting him up the hill. But I don't have a knife. I don't know how to gut him. I don't know anything. And the guy goes – kind of looks at him. He, looks at his, he has another guy in the car with him. He's like – well, I'll tell you what, I'll do it if you give me the heart and the liver. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know that innards are something that's a negotiating tactic. Oh so God. I'm like, done, done. I tell you what, you can have the lungs and the intestines and anything else you want. Go for it. So he helps me get this deer up the hill. He guts the deer for me, takes the, the lung and the uh, takes the heart and the, and the liver as his as his payment in full. And I drag the deer down to the to the the the, the uh, deer camp, hang the deer up because they had shown me what I should do as far as that's concerned. And I'm sitting there for about an hour. All of a sudden, they hear these ATVs coming back, right? So here's the schmuck kid who's sitting here, like had never shot a gun before, and all of a sudden, who's got a deer fully gutted, hanging from a thing, and all this kind of stuff. These guys, I mean, the looks on their faces is, is like. They could have been dragging their jaws the along the ground. Waiting for that moment would and, have just killed me. And they had been had a pretty big And they came back. Literally, I'm sure they were coming back to have a nice leisurely lunch. Dude, they ate their lunch so fast and were getting themselves back out into those deaths because there was no way, no way this kid was going to get out there and be the only guy who got a buck that day. But Again, not the my biggest gear, not my best, but 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 that was that was my classic story of you know every once in a while a blind squirrel finds a nut, you know. That's a good story. I like that story. That's awesome. <laughs> I got a buddy that has a similar story. First time I brought him up. That's great. That's great, Buck. I like that. Thank you. Well, well cool. you got I, it, that, bud. that that's a that's a good episode. We we covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, just to recap, outdooraccess.com is where people ought to go to find you if they're curious. If anyone's going out to, you know, yep. the, the East Coast, Virginia, North Carolina for any sort of vacation, you have the longest deer season that I've ever heard of. And at that rate, 
you know, if you buy um, an out-of-state tag, there's a good chance you could go there for a hunting vacation and just show up and hunt some land based on, you know, your, your platform. Um, not a bad idea, right? Well, and that's the kind of cool thing about it is that, again, somebody can show up as long as they have an out-of-state tag. They can have the same level of access to private land that somebody who's lived in Virginia their entire life. And actually, one of our largest constituencies of members are active-duty military who are people that find themselves stationed in Virginia, but they're not originally from Virginia. I I spent some time out in Quantico, so I know there's a pretty big – Base exactly. Yeah, you got the Marine Corps base out there. The so you sit, you sit there, and you're like, "Hey, listen, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna join a club because I'm gonna be here six months or whatever. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm transitory. But while I'm here, it'd be awfully nice to be able to take advantage of it without having to drive around knocking on doors. And we allow those people to immediately plug in and take advantage of it while they're in market. Yeah, there, and there's plenty of hunting that happens, I think, on base too. But that gets crowded quick. So I would say. Man, yep. I would certainly be dropping off some information at the the bases and recruiting stations and things like that. That'd be awesome. I bet those guys would really love that. We do. Like I say, like our our number our number one source of of members is active duty folks from Fort Lee, from Quantico, from uh, Fort Bragg in North Carolina. So from Norfolk, so lots of lots and lots of areas where people are looking at it and saying, if I was back home, I'd have no problem. But here I find myself in this kind of a stranger in a strange land. Where am I supposed to go? And we make it as, as, as turnkey as possible. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks so much for your time this evening. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, it always means a lot to me when I have anybody on the show that you've taken time to, to hang out with me. And, you know, like I said, I think we covered a lot of ground. And I'm, I'm very much so looking forward to you guys entering into this geographic range of the Midwest. It's going to be pretty exciting we'll, when it happens. We'll be there. Bef- we'll, we're looking forward to it, too. And we'll be there before you know it. Rock on. Thank you so much for having me. Really, it's been a pleasure. And, again, I I just encourage um, all of your listeners, please take somebody who's never hunted out. It will change their life, and it will help our – our this pastime that we love, this 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 sport that we love, this lifestyle that we love, perpetuate. So whether you do it with us or do it with anybody else, we don't really care. It's just a matter of making sure that we get more folks out there understanding and respecting what it's all about. Thank you. And coming from a guy like yourself who didn't have that in their upbringing, um, you know that that carries a lot of weight. So thanks, man. That's awesome. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. could be a negotiating tactic. <laughs> uh, so my, my tip of the week is less and less of a tip these days um, because to give tips, I'd have to be some sort of expert, and I'm just not. So my advice is something that I started doing on this particular show that you're listening to is as opposed to asking someone what their favorite hunting story is, I've been asking people what the most memorable hunting experience was or memorable hunting story and so I just, um, 
encourage anybody that's talking to someone about hunting. You know, I'm going to be going to Deer Fest this weekend on Friday, August 3rd. And uh, that's something that I want to really deploy and ask people because I just love those stories. And everyone's most memorable hunt is so drastically different than the next. So Bucks was very different from a different guest that I had on um, the other day. And, you know, some of them are funny, some are interesting, some are sentimental, some are heart-wrenching or whatever. So just super fascinating. Um, I would, again, encourage anybody that's talking to someone else about hunting, if you're at some sort of party that you've been forced to go to in some awkward social event and you've happened to ma magically find that other hunter in the room, which is always kind of a good thing, right? Um, for us hunters, it's usually the other guy wearing a camouflage hat. But, uh, you know, what's your most memorable hunting experience? And see, see what they say. And um, you might be pleasantly surprised. So that's my quote-unquote tip of the week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, we're going to be getting more tactical here. I think I mentioned that. On the last episode, and this one was less tactic and more story and about a, a particular technology platform or tool that could help us out as hunters. So um, there'll be some of that stuff too, but I appreciate everybody that listens. And thanks again for the ratings, those of you that do that. Um, I'll stop talking. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Hunt public or don't, but, uh, you know, I like public land hunting. Mm -hmm.